Welcome into the best in paranormal programming. This is Darkness Radio. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. Got an exciting show for you today, folks. You know, we're going to take a little bit of a trip. As you know, we're into the fall season. And even though the kids have gone back to school, every once in a while, we like to get away. And I know a lot of you are ghost hunters and cryptid hunters. And for those of you who are cryptid hunters and like to get out there in the great outdoors, boy, have I got a treat for you today. Uh, We're going to head out to the West Coast, and we're going to the Columbia River Gorge in Washington State today. Our guest is James Shubsky. He is the Chief Operating Officer of Margie's Outdoor Store, which is located deep within the Columbia River Gorge in Washington State. And boy, has he got some things for you today. We're not just talking ordinary Bigfoot stories or ordinary UFO stories. Oh, no, 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 no. No, my friends. We have a special treat for you today. I'll tell you about it in a second. In 2022, James opened his store. It was uh, and it initiated a paranormal reporting program, which has now received well over 100 reports of strange activity in the Gorge area. James is a former volunteer search and rescue EMT, a wildland firefighter, a mountain guide, and a highly decorated U.S. Army infantry veteran. He earned a degree in communications from the Evergreen State College and has enjoyed a decades-long career in that field, working for companies like Wizards of the Coast, the makers of Dungeons & Dragons, and Magic the Gathering. We'll talk a little bit about that. I used to work for Starlog. I don't know if he knows that, but I managed a Starlog store, so we got a little bit to talk about there. And he currently volunteers his time as the leader of the yes you're going to hear this a little bit here and this is the new cryptid we're introducing to you today the kickatat ape cat research team you're going to hear that term a little bit and we'll talk a little bit about that creature here today let's welcome in folks to darkness radio james shubsky james how are you today i'm doing great thank you for having me on I'm excited today, sir. I got to tell you, at uh, anytime we we get to a new area of the country, anytime we get to explore a new area, get to know the area and get to know the, let's just say the woodland creatures and you have ghosts out there as well. So we'll get into that too. Uh, anytime we get to know the flora, the fauna and the creatures of that area, it's, it's, a, it's a good day for me. Um, I want to start slow though. I want to get into your interests. Uh, as I mentioned, I did manage a Starlog store for a little while. So we're going to geek out first, James, just a little bit for our audience. Um, tell me a little bit about your interest in Dungeons and Dragons. And you did work for Wizards of the Coast for a while. Uh, yeah, yes, tell, I did. Tell me about your interest uh, there. It was a dream job, really. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, so it was back in the 2000s and, um, so I had been playing Dungeons and Dragons as a kid, and it was really just sort of living the dream to be able to work uh, for Wizards of the Coast. You know, I, I was responsible for building uh, several magic expansions. Okay. And uh, one of my, you know, sort of, uh, I guess, uh, highlight moments was playing Dungeons and Dragons in the boardroom. Uh, and, you know, we had obviously the world's best dungeon masters. And so, yeah, uh, yeah. it was just like, you couldn't get better right. And every product that the company produced. Like we got full sets of, I remember my first day at Wizards of the Coast, I was issued a Nerf gun and <laughs> it was really? just at the time that uh third edition came out and I got the complete set of the brand new third edition books that were sitting on my desk on my first day. And, uh, so it was a real blast, but you know, it really speaks to, um, you know, my passion for adventure and you, know, you listed some of those uh, endeavors that I've been involved with, whether it being a soldier or a firefighter or a search and rescue EMT. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the idea of 
really getting out there and being in the wilderness uh, has always been a huge part of my life. And my wife and I had the opportunity to move down to the Columbia River Gorge a couple of years ago. And this place is an adventurous dream. Um, so the gorge, uh, so just how we got here. Um, so my mother-in-law before you before you tell us that i can't let you off that easy james come on okay (laughs) first of all you got to tell me the most as far as value goes the most expensive expansion pack they let you have or that they gave to you while you were there well for magic expansion pack like we got complete box complete right complete expansion yeah 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 and so i had so how um, uh, what was the oldest one that you worked on and what was the most valuable one you worked on so I, um, my first project was Magic Seventh Edition. Okay, and then I was there for like four years, so I got every expansion uh, in between there. And you know, like those are the kind of things that I wasn't interested in selling. Um, but you know, after I worked for Wizards of the Coast, I worked for WizKids, and so I got all of the um, Hero Click sets and all of the games that uh, WizKids produced. So I mean, it, like I said, it was uh, that's crazy. <laughs> you know, was, we worked. I worked with. Um, Oh, the folks at Star Wars. I worked for Marvel and DC. Really? Did stuff with the NFL, the MLB. Did stuff with uh, Halo. Uh, we we played around with doing an Indiana Jones thing, but we never got to do that. Really? But yeah, and so um, and this is all in uh, cards, right? Well, cards and miniatures. And, really? Um, yeah. And so uh, Pirates of the Caribbean was another one of our really fun ones. Uh, and so yeah, it was just this who's who of awesome cool stuff. And, uh, you know, to be intimately involved with that, um, you know, eventually my role was director of blue sky projects. And so it was my job to figure out what the cool, fun new thing would be and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, turn that into a reality. So. See, you, you just can't skip over that with me. You just can't James. I know where you, I know we're going to get, we're going to get into the story eventually James, but you just can't skip yeah. over that with me. You just can't do it. Okay. I apologize. You know, yeah. it's not uh, that many hosts that are as interested in that part of my history. <laughs> I gotta so tell it's you, good to meet a fellow, yeah. um, you know, a fellow uh, Imagineer um, yeah. and yeah. someone who's, who loves that that kind of thing. I got to tell you, I worked at a store that had an entire Star Trek room. You know, I mean, we're, you know, had the entire, uh, I, I, you got to imagine an entire room that's, that's you know, decked out like the the, oh, the entire, so cool. yeah, and, and nothing but Star Trek autographs. And then, of course, uh, you know, we had different areas of the store where we had different sections and stuff. And the entire back of the, the you know, back behind the cash register was nothing but, but magic cards. And you got to oh. imagine, this is at a time where there was a run on magic cards. I mean, oh, I every, remember the days. Yes. Every kid that came in, just as soon as you got, you know, an expansion pack that came in, it was gone. Yeah. I mean, those yeah. are the days that I that I managed a store. So. It, yeah, it was pretty wild. You know, here's the incredible fact. Um, when I got there, we were still doing Pokemon cards. Okay. And Pokemon was, the cardboard cards were doing $2 billion a year. That's in revenue, insane. That's insane. Which is. You know that's that's crazy, um, but uh, but now like you're, it, it was a now you're talking was about a, joy. a market. I don't mean to interrupt, but now you're talking about the fact that it's resurging that Pokemon yeah, market. Yeah, yeah. And those old exactly. cards are getting so much. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, yeah, it's it's amazing, and now it's you know a nostalgia thing for all the kids who grew up with it, and mm-hmm. uh, so now those kids have a lot of money because they're uh, income earning adults, and. Uh, they can indulge their 
their their dreams so my little brother is 27 years old and i remember he had i mean he had binders full and rare mm-hmm. rare cards i can't imagine what he's sitting on right now i just can't yeah. You know, my nine-year-old daughter is into it. She she's got you know tons of Pokemon cards, and it's just the thing you do. Yeah. You know, when, even when I was a kid, um, we would collect like the tops cards, like, and I remember Star yeah. Wars cards and all that other kind of stuff. That's like way, way, way back when there was still oh, bubblegum yeah. in the packs. Yeah, yeah. And so, have, have you ever chewed an old piece of that bubblegum, like from the old Star Wars cards? You remember the first <laughs> yes. and second series? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can was, you imagine? Uh, can you imagine how gross that is? It's, it's a brittle, you know, shatters oh. in your mouth. Yeah. Oh, be horrible. Be horrible. Okay. So I interrupted you, my friend. Uh, so you, you decided to move out uh, to Washington with your wife. Yeah. Well, um, so my mother-in-law uh, owned several businesses in the gorge mm-hmm. and um, she passed away in March of 2021. And so we inherited these businesses and that's when all the really interesting stuff started happening. Um so, you know, like I said, I was a you know soldier and a firefighter and uh, did all those. And, and, you know, once I was, you know, working professionally in the gaming industry, I was getting my adventure fixed by being a search and rescue EMT up in the Seattle area. And uh, so, you know, the, the point there is that, you know, I have s- seen a lot of stuff and I know um, what's what in the wilderness mm-hmm. and uh, very competent in, in managing myself in that regard, but Mm -hmm. the gorge, I mean, it was like winning the lottery. So the Columbia river gorge is the largest river that empties into the Pacific ocean on both North and South America. And so it forms the border between Washington and Oregon state. Um, and the gorge uh, runs right through the middle of the cascade mountains. So cascade mountains are 75,000 square miles of some of the most rugged and beautiful terrain on earth. Uh, there are, dozens of uh, glacier clad peaks um, on the map behind me uh, there's uh, mount adams which is a famous ufo hotspot there's mm-hmm. mount hood famous for sasquatch sightings um, and then again within 35 miles of the store there's also mount st helens which famously erupted in 1980. so the area is geologically very active um, but those uh, mountains, so there's a couple things that happen. The river is at sea level, basically, okay. um, and it's the only sea level passage through the Cascade Mountains. But then the mountains rise up dramatically from the river, and within less than half a mile, you can go from 30 feet above sea level to, you know, three or 4,000 feet above sea level. Oh, wow. And so it's this dramatically beautiful place. Um it's got the highest concentration of waterfalls anywhere in America. And on the Oregon side alone, there are 90 waterfalls. And some of them are over 600 feet tall. Uh, there are caves scattered throughout the whole area. The mountains form a rain shadow. So on the western half of the mountains, it is a Pacific Northwest rainforest that sees over 100 inches of rain a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, my house is in uh, Skamania County. Uh, which is on the wet side of the mountains. And then I drive about 20 minutes to work and I get to the border of the desert. And so on the other side of the mountains is a rain shadow and it sees less than 10 inches of rain a year. And so you go from, you know, everything you can like X files forest kind of um, environment to like this sort of desert mesa and high rocky cliffs and no trees, um, you know, gets up to 118 degrees in the summer. 
And so it really is like if you were creating a video game, this might be the coolest open world map you could possibly imagine, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's amazing to me. Every morning I drive through one of the most jaw-droppingly beautiful places in America, and in 20 minutes I go from the rainforest to the desert. And it's truly stunning. And um, so as an adventurer, you know, who's been paragliding and rock climbing and hiking and mountaineering and whitewater rafting my whole life, like this had everything. But I got here and uh, suddenly it was just ladled with all of this amazing paranormal activity. Everything from UFO sightings to Sasquatch sightings to this Klickitat ape cat that we'll get into a little bit later. Sure. There are um, in the town of the Dalles, which is the end of the Oregon Trail. Uh, it's not a ghost town. It is a ghost metropolis. Like the number of stories that come out of that place are just off the charts. Um, we've had stories of portals uh, that people have witnessed. We've had glowing orbs. Uh, I've taken pictures of them myself. My wife and I have seen them with our naked eyes. Mm -hmm. And it it really is this incredibly enchanted landscape. And so, of course, you know, a D&D &D nerd like myself, who has been going out at adventures and wishing there was some kind of magical component in the real world, mm -hmm. I landed here, uh, you know, through these inherited businesses. And suddenly, um, like the this whole new avenue of adventure and wonder and magic opened up before my eyes. And it has been one of the most joyful and amazing, interesting experiences that I've ever had. You know, all of my 10 out of 10 outdoor experiences became like five out of 10. And now these, these paranormal things are like way up there. And uh, so it's just been a remarkable journey. Let me ask you this, James. So when you first moved to the gorge, what do you remember as the very first paranormal experience that you have or that you see? So what happened was, um, so one of the businesses was this store that uh, Margie, my mother-in-law, started when she was um, still sick. And so it really was kind of failing. It was, you know, sort of a convenience store, but it really wasn't doing anything. And with all my outdoor experience, I thought, well, you know, I, I probably could make a pretty good go of an outdoor adventure store. Mm -hmm. I wanted it to be, I wanted it to be something unique and special. And so we, um, you know, we also have... Uh, well, <laughs> we have like sort of a new age section. So there are divining rods and tarot cards and crystals. Sure. And for me, like the fun part of outdoor adventure is that magical experience you have. Mm -hmm. And and so we sell things like grappling hooks and lock picks and all that kind of stuff. Sort of, you know, a true adventurer's store. Mm -hmm. Well, it wasn't. And I should say that, you know, coming to the gorge wasn't my first paranormal experience. Um, in the military, I had some unusual experiences when I was... Um, doing martial arts training and Aikido and Zazen sitting meditation. I had some very unique experiences. Okay. And so I wasn't a stranger to it. Mm -hmm. um, but we opened the outdoor store, uh, Margie's outdoor store in Bingen, Washington. And right away, like within a week, people started coming in and organically telling us their UFO stories and their Sasquatch encounter stories. And I was fascinated. I thought, wow, this is remarkable. And so, I decided to sort of lean into it. And we put up a big sign in the window that said, file your paranormal reports here. Listen, Sasquatch sightings, UFO encounters, you know, ghost experiences, portals, temporal anomalies, um, strange experiences. We want to hear about it. Mm -hmm. And um, because of my background, I had some very specific instructions for the employees. I said, first of all, 
I want you to take everyone seriously. I want you to treat them with dignity and respect. Um, you know, don't try to insert what you believe they saw on their experience, take in the information, um, ask intelligent follow-up questions as though their experience were, were a real experience. Um, and I thought, you know, maybe we would get, you know, a handful of people telling tall tales just to have fun. And I thought there's really no harm in that, but I know from personal experience that uh, when you've had an extraordinary encounter and a really unusual, strange experience, um, having someone believe you and take you seriously, not question your sanity can really make all the difference in the world. Sure. And so we wanted to create this safe place where you could file a report, you'd be listened to and, um, you know, you would, you could feel comfortable. And mm -hmm. so we've gained a reputation for that. And there's a, an update to your intro. You said that we've had a hundred reports. Well, in the past year and nine months, I guess it is now, we've had over 220 reports. Oh, wow. And okay. so it is off the charts. And sometimes, you know, like I'll get, um, I took a picture and it had a glowing blue orb in it. And, um, you know, maybe we can get that up on the screen. And, so I posted this on several of the local um, neighborhood, like just there's about seven or eight towns in the gorge. Mm -hmm. um, maybe a total of 75,000 people live here. And uh, so I posted this on like the local community pages and I would easily get um, hundreds of responses to these things because many people had seen them themselves. A lot of folks simply just tag a friend and say, look at the picture. Um, and so, so many people have had these experiences here. And so like the numbers of reports, because I start to get reports through Facebook or whatever at that point, they just start to ratchet up. And so in the last several months, you know, we've had well over a hundred reports in the last three months. Um, and wow. a lot of those are people who haven't come into the store to file a formal report. And, and just to be clear, so the way that reports work is um, we have a form in the store okay. and people can come in and fill that out um, by hand. A lot of folks just prefer to give a verbal report. And so then we'll take notes afterwards. Okay. Recently on our website, margiesoutdoorstore.com, uh, I put up a digital version of the report form so you can file a report like that. And then again, we get reports from social media frequently and it's the gorge is not a huge place I mean, there's not tons of people here. And so I'm kind of getting well known. And so people will stop me post office or in the grocery store and, you know, we'll have a 30 minute conversation about the experiences they've had. And it's just been a complete delight. I mean, to connect with folks, to hear these unusual stories, the relief that they feel when someone is believing them and taking them seriously. Mm -hmm. Many folks have had these stories within them for years decades. And, they have, you know, confided someone, got nervous laughter, and um, it hasn't gone well from a social perspective. And so they've they've just held these within them and wondered, what the heck did I experience? Right. And so, uh, so the question that you asked was, you know, how did I get into this? Well, I was a little predisposed, and then we got here, and then it was sort of like kicking over a log in the woods, and suddenly, like. It was just teeming with life. And so mm -hmm. we've been um, going down that path and, and I really wasn't sure what we we're going to do with all this information, but I thought, well, let's start the process of gathering it and see where it goes. Now, and so that's kind of where we are today. I am curious, James. Now you've, you've gathered now hundreds of these reports. You have them at your disposal. There are a few different avenues you can go with these reports. 
-hmm. in your mind, do you have an idea of what you're going to do with these reports as they continue to amass? So um, the first thing that we do is we look for patterns, you know, try to see, okay, well, is, is a certain place more active than others? Are people having a similar type of experience? Are there commonalities in those experiences? Uh, so that's one of the things that we do um, in the store. So uh, there's this map um, and maybe you can put up on the screen. This is a map that I drew by hand and it sort of pinpoints many of the locations of where a lot of these paranormal reports go. So we've got this map. It's probably six feet long in the store, hanging up on the wall with pins on it and some descriptions of some of the paranormal activity that has been reported in the store. So people can come into the store and sort of see uh, what we're what we're talking about. I've created a couple of things we call arcane adventure maps. So there are a few hot spots in the gorge. And so these are sort of like self-guided tours where we give you some of the information from the reports, uh, some local legends, uh, details on how to get there and how to get to the specific places where encounters have occurred. And uh, so the arcane adventure maps, people can come into the store and pick up. And, you know, it's like a, a four page folded laminated document. Um, and it's like a weekend's worth of an adventure. Mm -hmm. So I've been trying to put those together. Um, and then I am right now putting the finishing touches on a four and a half hour bus tour of the gorge. So I've partnered with a company called Sasquatch Shuttle. And uh, so when people are visiting the area, they can hop on this tour and revisit sites where people have encountered Sasquatches and the Klickitat Ape Cat. And um, we've had pictures taken of UFOs and orbs. And we go to some of the uh, ghost areas where there've been paranormal hotspots. There's a ghost town you visit. And so that's another way that we're trying to give people the lived experience. Uh, and for me, it's sharing the joy and the mystery and the wonder of this stuff. And I'm hoping this uh, winter, when I have a little more free time, I'm going to uh, you know start to document these and put them into a book. Ah, excellent. Okay. Um, here's the other thing I wondered too. You know, with with the arrow meetings going on right now, Capitol Hill, they're always asking for different reports, people having these different reports. Obviously, you have UFO activity out there in the gorge. Has it, um, and I have to ask about your trust level here when it comes to the government too, because we, I think some of us are a little skeptical as to what they do with these actual reports, but has it, um, has it come across your radar as to whether some of these reports are worth copying and maybe sending on, or is there a trust level there with the people in the gorge that maybe it's not, for the government to know your people's story? Well, I'm pretty sure that the government knows all the stuff that's going on here. So we okay. have had many reports. So the Gorge has got, um, well, the Columbia River has got probably 14 hydroelectric dams. Okay. And it produces 44% of all the hydroelectric power in the United States. It is a primary transportation route with highways on both sides of the river, rail lines on both sides of the river. And of course the river itself is a transit corridor. And so in terms of strategic importance, the, the gorge is on everybody's map. Like uh, it is one of our most uh, important pieces of infrastructure in the West. And in fact, probably all of America is really uh, the hydroelectric dams power pretty much most of the West coast. And so they provide power to LA. So it is such a critical place. And we've had many reports of advanced military aircraft in the skies. These are things like black choppers that fly through the canyons, making no sound. Mm -hmm. um, 
And we've had several reports in the store of people being stopped by uh, men in suits while they're hiking in the forest. Uh, you know, they pull up in a black suburban and say, you can't be here. And there's um, there's even uh, rumors persist that around Mount Adams, which is this incredible UFO hotspot, and we can probably get into some of the details of that a little bit later on. Yes. Yep. That there is actually um, a base there of some sort uh, where dignitaries from around the world visit with extraterrestrial intelligences. Again, these are rumors, and I can't speak to the veracity. You know, I get these reports, and I basically reiterate what I'm being told. But I can tell you that um, the advanced military aircraft in the area are absolutely real. That's I have no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. um, and there are many bases in the area um and, and not even regular old military aircraft um we see them all the time yeah and um but the notion of these bases um that's one of those things that when you first hear it you're like yeah right there's there's a base under the mountain and there's aliens there and you know like either the stories vary whether it's united nations or nato or whoever are flying dignitaries in there and they are having meetings with these beings um but there's absolutely 100% historically confirmed that there are uh, highly sensitive um, top secret government sites. In fact, the Hanford nuclear site, which was a part of the original Manhattan project is just, you know, 60 miles upriver. And there are some pretty harrowing tales about um, the things that happened there and the things that may have escaped from there. Um, and so it's very, very, uh, the government presence here is very, very real. And uh, so there's no question in my mind that they know what's going on here. Um, and there's, like I said, anecdotal evidence to suggest that uh, they, they don't just know what's going on here. They're camped out here and, and continually monitoring it. We've had areas in the Gifford Pinchot National Forest, um, which is just, you know, up the street from my store, where areas have been cordoned off by the government and just yesterday i got a report from someone saying yeah they were going up there doing prospecting for gems and gold and things like that and <laughs> one month they just had to go up there and the whole place was cordoned off government signs saying you can't be up here there's cameras all over the place they even tried to sneak around through a river and there were cameras there saying nope you can't come through they talked to the county the county had you know sort of wishy-washy run around kind of answers about why no one was allowed in the area and that kind of stuff is fairly common. And so the evidence of government presence is ubiquitous. It's not even like a question for the residents here. Hmm. Interesting indeed. Uh, I want to dive into that when we come back on the other side of the break. Also, I want to, I want to talk a little bit more about Bigfoot and the presence of Bigfoot. Of course, if the government is around and not just maybe having contact with alien presences, of course, they have to be somewhat studying Bigfoot, you would think, too, or, or maybe even trying to get into what Bigfoot is and what Bigfoot is doing around. Then I want to talk to you, James, about something that our good fr friend uh, Ronnie LeBlanc from Expedition Bigfoot um, talked to us about last year, and that is the connection between Bigfoot and UFO, um, mm -hmm. which seems to go hand in hand, um, and whether you see that connection as well in the gorge. Uh, with that, let's take our break. Our, game, or our guest for today is James Shubsky, and we're talking about Margie's Outdoor Store, and we're talking about uh, all kinds of things, ghosts, UFOs, Bigfoot, and, uh, 
and tell us again about the cryptid we're talking about, James, because the I don't... Click-a-tat ape cat. Click-a-tat ape cat. I didn't want to mess up the name yet. Um, <laughs> but the click-a-tat ape cat, which we'll talk more about in depth when we come back. Uh, the... Uh, We have the the, uh, different links in the description of this program, but we want to uh, encourage you to check out Margie's Outdoor Store. Is it in Bingen, Washington? Is that how it's pronounced? Bingen, Washington. Yeah, Bingen is not a huge town. I think there's maybe 800 residents. Um, We're right across the river uh, from the town of Hood River, uh, and there's a bridge that connects the two states. And uh, so Hood River is really famous. It's the windsurfing capital of the world. And so... um, yeah, but right there in little old Benjamin, Washington. We also have a link to the Arcane Adventure maps, too, that uh, that James has out. They're full-color guides to paranormal hotspots within the gorge, uh, and they're currently only available at Margie's Outdoor Store. We, we're going to send you to the, the website. We encourage you to visit and to check out Margie's Outdoor Store as well. Again, it's a great place to visit, especially if you're a lover of the outdoors and the paranormal. I, I think there's plenty to see there, right, James? Yes, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So when we come back uh, more with James Shubsky, we're going to talk about uh, everything that's going on there. We're going to dive right away into the the alien connection and the government connection because there's a lot going on there. We're going to talk about Mount Hood, Mount Adams, and what exactly is cooking there. You're listening to the best in paranormal programming. This is Darkness Radio. Welcome back to the Best in Paranormal Programming. This is Darkness Radio. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. Our guest is James Shubsky. He's the Chief Operating Officer of the of Margie's Outdoor Store, uh, which is in Columbia River Gorge in Washington State. We are talking about, uh, well, we're talking about everything supernatural. We're talking about Bigfoot. We're talking about aliens and the Kick-A-Tat Ape Cat, which is coming up later in the program. I know it's a brand new cryptid to you and I, folks, but we're going to get into it and the origin of this creature and exactly what it is, how you can see it, or if you even want to see it. Because after reading the description of it, James, I don't know that I want to come eye to eye with this thing. Well, you know, luckily, um, we've had over 70 reports of this creature and uh, none of them are hostile encounters. And uh, so to me, that's comforting yeah, <laughs> at least a little yeah. bit um but yeah it's a it's a very interesting thing and, and it surprised me when i when it came up and so yeah um but i'm happy to dive into that now or happy to cover some of your sasquatch questions let's uh let's uh, first i want to i want to continue the alien thread we were talking about before we went to break now you'd mentioned that uh i believe it's mount a- mount adams correct where right. the where mm-hmm. the base is located i want to start on a on a little bit different thread here um you know when we were talking about the arrow meetings or we we hinted at it earlier um there seems to be a distinction here that we've been talking about on the program over the last few weeks that is you know we have the new distinction of uap unidentified aerial phenomena and ufo uh, mm-hmm. And they, they seem to jumble between the two. UAP seems to mean, and, and you know this being a military man yourself, uh, it seems to mean more man-made, unidentified aerial phenomena, whereas UFO mm-hmm. tends to mean alien. I think we, we, we toggle between the two, at least in government speak. They seem to be throwing mm-hmm. that out there. 
So if you see something on a video and you hear UAP, it could mean that it's made something made by us or maybe even another country. Um, what is your belief? Now, I, I tend to believe that still 95% of the things we see in the sky that are unidentified are made by us or another country. Are you of that mind or do you believe that a lot of what we're seeing up there isn't made by us here on this earth? So I think the, the name change is really a branding question. Okay. Um, so for so long, the government stigmatized intentionally uh, UFOs. And, okay. you know, you can look at the history and I'm not a conspiracy guy, but they had their reasons for wanting to tamp down interest in that or making that seem like it was not a credible field of study. And for whatever reason, the government has changed their mind on that. And we could speculate forever, but I don't have any inside information of any real value. Okay. Other than to say the government now has the opinion that they want people to be talking about this and they don't, they want to remove the stigma for it. And you see that in the results of what they did in 2021 when they did the, uh, when Congress first had their hearings about this and they came to the conclusion that this, phenomena needs to be studied. There needs to be a formal reporting process and the stigma about reporting needs to be reduced. Um, and since then, hundreds of pilots have come forward because it's no longer a career ending uh, discussion. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's sort of the same philosophy that we have in the store of uh, not critiquing, not giving people the sideways looks of acknowledging that they may have had an extraordinary experience. And, um, and then once those, uh, once that comfort level is there, when you're not going to be stigmatized, then you can have an intelligent discussion about the actual facts on the ground and what's being observed. So I think that that's why the government is is changing the name. They want, like, if you say, I saw a UFO, you're written off as a nut job. Mm -hmm. If you say, I saw UAP, you're now using the official terminology, which is acceptable as a scientific study. Okay. And for that reason, I think you, the, the second part of your question was, are they aliens from another planet or are they uh, man-made objects or, or, or something like that? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. based on all the things that I've heard in the store and my personal research, I have a sense that uh, these things are more extra dimensional than from outer space. And when you listen to the testimony of the whistleblower, um, he, t he specifically does not call them aliens. Mm -hmm. He says non-human biologics. Right. And when you look at all of the phenomenon related to Sasquatch and UFOs and even this Klippetet ape cat and the orbs that people are seeing and the craft that people are seeing, and they're seeming to defy the laws of physics as we currently understand them. Um, you know, like we've had stories of Sasquatch teleporting short distances and mm -hmm. things like that. Very similar to what the, gun camera information shows where the object, the tic-tac-shaped objects are in one spot, they disappear, then they reappear 60 miles away. So this teleportation type of uh, property is less indicative of necessarily something that's coming from another planet, but more indicative of something which is using extra dimensional space and uh, to travel or transit. And it also, in my mind, um, helps to make sense of why the physical evidence for these things is so spotty. Um, it's sort of like uh, if they are visiting our everyday physical reality from another dimension or a place that is not commonly perceived by our senses, 
uh, and then returning to that place, then they might leave physical evidence like tracks or hair or whatever. But finding bodies or um, other types of things like that, uh, it it to me helps explain that story a little bit better. Yeah. And you know, this is the kind of stuff that the U.S. Department of Energy has fully fully admitted, you know, that they are studying multiverses and pocket dimensions and all these different kind of things through high energy physics. And so it's, it's, uh, that to me feels more like, um, so when I talk about paranormal, I'm talking about things that seem to violate the laws of nature as we currently understand them. But as our knowledge expands, they, they are no longer paranormal. They're just normal phenomenon that we have not yet figured out how it works. Understandable. Um, with that, I want to bring that back around to what you said about Mount Adams. If if this is truly, it seems like one hand really doesn't know what the other is doing. And that's that's clearly evident when we sit and see the members of Congress sit there and say, well, we want all this information released to us. That means that there's two factions of government. There's the career government employees that are holding on to this uh, top secret information. And then there are the electable employees, such as your congressmen, that are cycling through, you know, even though they may be career politicians, uh, they're the electable employees that come through that don't necessarily get this information, uh, mm. but still want to be able to hold on to that information and see this information which some people would say shadow government, real government. I don't, I don't want to use the term shadow government. I don't believe in my mind that exists. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know whether you believe that or not. Um, but with that being said, um, I want to bring it back to what you were saying about meetings at Mount Adams. If that's the case, is it a matter of one hand not knowing what the other's doing? Or do you believe there is a faction within government that is known all along and has been making deals with uh, these visitors. I'll call them visitors, for lack of a better term. And if so, what do you believe the deal is? Well, that's a tough question. In the military, um, to a man, almost everyone I encountered was an honorable person, right? Mm -hmm. And I myself joined the military with the belief that I was sacrificing a part of my life and my life and limb, uh, putting that on the line to protect my fellow citizens. And I think that that is a genuine sentiment amongst many people who are called to government service. Um, not all, um, but, mm -hmm. but many people, especially those folks, the military mindset is a, is a different kind of a mindset than a civilian mindset. And, uh, of course there are dirty deals. I mean, it's politics in life. I mean, it's, the way that humans have interacted. So obviously, of course, there are conspiracies. The government, like any a conspiracies, two or more people in power who are keeping information from people who don't have that power. And if you've ever been a part of a parenting team, you have been part of a conspiracy. <laughs> that's like, that's true. Yeah. 100% human nature. Yeah. It's childish to think that conspiracies don't happen. And why would someone who has power share information that retains their power with others who don't. Mm -hmm. So of course, conspiracies are part of our reality and how much you focus on that in your personal life is really going to be directly related to your happiness in life. If you're convinced that conspiracies are aligned against you and all this shit is happening, well, mm -hmm. you know, you're pretty much dooming yourself to a life of blaming an other that you can't do anything about uh, for your own unhappiness. And that's going to get you nowhere. 
So I don't really spend a lot of time worrying about that or thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it's interesting. Um, it's conceivable that uh, honorable people would conclude that politicians who are typically a short-term gain kind of folks may make bad decisions about powerful technologies, which is replete throughout history. And they, through a sense of protecting the citizens, have decided that they're not going to um, make all this information available. That's my own personal fantasy about what's going on. So, and I don't have any real information to contribute to the conversation. So I don't want to, uh, you know, project like my experiences here in the gorge are somehow indicative of anything. I will tell you that um, right at the base of Mount Adams is mm-hmm. a place run by James Gilliland, um, who it's called East City Ranch. It stands for enlightened contact with extraterrestrial intelligence. And for decades, James has been inviting people to his property. And I don't know, like you can pay 50 or 75 bucks to spend the night there. Um, and people watch UFOs or UAPs fly around Mount Adams all night. Mm-hmm. If you go to eSETI.org, you can look at videos and you see these lights clearly flying around through the sky. Obviously, at this day and age, you can fake anything. But I'm certain based on the reports I've heard from people who've been there, that they're experiencing something real. Like there are people witnessing it with their own eyes. It's not a camera phenomenon. It's not a Photoshop phenomenon. It's, and I've seen orbs myself driving around on the gorge. So I know that these things are have a reality to them. And um, and so, and James claims to be in contact with several races of extraterrestrial intelligences. And some of them are, you know, wildly superior to our intelligence and, and everything else at night. I don't know a ton of details on his entire pantheon of uh, beings that he interacts with, but he is certainly very earnest. And, um, and I have no reason to disbelieve uh, him as to what he says. People come from all over the world to visit Iseti. Uh Skeptics come, uh, they come as skeptics and they leave believers, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and just the other day I got a report of a woman who went out there, had a really wonderful time. She even saw uh, through, um, night vision goggles, a hangar door open on, in, on the mountain and vehicles flying in and out of it. We've had reports of people have seen this portal with their naked eyes, like residents who live here in the gorge, sitting on their back porch, looking at Mount Adams with binoculars, will see a physical door open and things fly in and out of it. Hmm. Um, we've even had uh, one gentleman came into the store and he said, I want to tell you about a portal I saw near Mount Adams. And I kind of jumped the gun. I said, oh, you mean like the hangar door that opens? Like, no, this was a uh, floating next to the mountain. And it was the sky in this hole looked different than the sky surrounding this hole. And he thought it might be something wrong with his eyes. You know, he tried to adjust his eyes in a couple of different ways. He traveled a couple of miles to a different direction and the phenomenon remain there present in the sky. And again, I don't, I, um, and so here's this individual who is distinctly not a part of the government. And he has been inviting people to experience a phenomenon that he's seeing multiple, multiple, multiple eyewitnesses, decades of records on this. They're all encountering the same thing. He claims that there are multiple races that he's in, in touch with. And um, like I said, after having lived here for a couple of years, I'm really inclined to believe that they, there is some phenomenon that they are encountering that has a reality that is persistent and consistent throughout time. And so the idea that our government wouldn't know about it 
is ridiculous to me. Like, of course they would know about it. Um, the very first UFO sighting in the United States, it really sort of kicked off the whole flying saucer thing was Kenneth Arnold. He was uh, flying a private plane from uh, Western Washington to Yakima, which is basically right over um, the Cascade Mountains. Mm -hmm. And he saw nine saucer-shaped craft flying at a speed that was impossible for the technology at the time. They were heading from the north, past Mount Rainier, and exactly right towards Mount Adams. Like, that was their flight path. And, you know, he was a credible witness. It was June of 1947. It went, uh, got nationally syndicated in the newspapers. People started getting excited about UFOs. Then in July of 1947, the Roswell crash occurred. And ever since then, America hasn't been the same regarding UFOs and UAPs. But really, that's sort of started right here at Mount Adams. And, um, and so uh, I guess, you know, you ask, what do I think about the government? And I, I'm inclined to believe that, of course, um, our government has the best surveillance of our skies of all time. And Washington state is the number one state in the country for UFO reports. Uh, there's been... I think it's well over 6,000 uh, UFO reports here in Washington State, highest per capita of any state in the country. Uh, and so it, it wouldn't surprise me a single bit if um, there were some type of base. I mean, according to the whistleblower, you know, we've been encountering these things since the 1940s, that they have recovered crashed vehicles and that there are non-human biologics that they are communicating with. Um, nothing that I've seen in the gorge refutes any of that. I'm curious here, James, because I come from a military family, too. And, and I understand when you say that there's a, a, a different culture um, as opposed to, say, a political culture. And I, believe me, I, I worked political talk radio for many years before I ever started doing this. And I, I get that culture, too. And, and they're two different things. Uh, there's. Uh, military culture is very honorable. I could say the exact opposite about a political culture. <laughs> we'll put it that way. That's a that's a that's a very uh, very democratic way of putting it. And, you know, the reason why that is is because you can mess around with politics, and the consequences are not immediate. Yes. When you're a soldier, yeah. mistakes mean the death of your friends. Yes. And you get very serious very quickly, and and honor is not a punchline like it is a survival tactic mm -hmm. and so like there's reasons for that and it's not um and there's serious-minded people who are genuinely interested in protecting the well-being of uh citizens and fellow soldiers and so um I, you know it's not a it's not just a cliche it's a real thing no it is a real thing and i think what a lot of people don't realize when it comes we talk about disclosure a lot and I think people in general think disclosure is never coming because the government wants to hide something. And I think that it's the exact opposite. I think the reason why the government is slow in disclosure in, in the people who are really trying to protect the citizens of this country, it's not because they're hiding something. It's because they truly are trying to protect the populace from something. And that's probably from themselves. I mean, in general, we're we're violent people. We really are. Yeah. We're, we're we're not quick to trust. <laughs> if history is any any guide, yeah. You know, I think that there's a there's a larger question here. And when I started down this path, 
I sort of spun out a bunch of different scenarios. Like what happens to this? What happens to this? You know, like you're kind of putting it out there. You're going to be the guy who's talking about paranormal stuff. And what does that mean? And the need for outside validation of my experiences, I had to abandon, Mm -hmm. you know, you can get yourself into a really sad state when you need to convince someone else that something you've experienced is real. Right. There's a million different reasons why they will never experience the same thing you did. Right. And so you have to stand in a place of, okay, um, I, I am confident in my perception of this reality. And if I allow myself to need someone else to believe it, or to have some kind of outside authority validate these experiences. I've already lost the game. I've already sent myself to do myself to unhappiness and waiting for someone else to do something for me to be real or be valid or whatever it is. And I think that that's just a a dead end uh, of a way to live your life. Um, And so for me, like it's, there's just an incredible joy of discovery and exploration. And so uh, shuttle any need, like abandon any need for others to believe what you believe. Um, take the people that you're talking to and, and assess the trustworthiness of these witnesses as they come to you and they share these very intimate private stories and then revel in the mystery and wonder of what's going on. You know, there are many different explanations that range anywhere from, you know, a personal reality to an external reality to you name it. But to me, it's the magic and enchantment and wonder that all of the questions have not yet been answered. There's still places in this world where mysteries are unsolved. To me, this is a joyful exercise in exploring the unknown. Mm-hmm. And you know, you bring in killjoys who need it to be proved or need the government to give their stamp of approval or need the church or or even your neighbor, like you've just, you've killed the fun of it. And what's the point in that? Well, I find it, it's, um, it really speaks to where somebody is in life when, when it's, it's, it's their own personal exercise and journey as to where exactly they're at as to how much they can accept. Like the people who will listen to a program like this and want to know more tend to be more open-minded and more open-hearted in where mm-hmm. they are in life, as opposed to someone who will sit and watch the news and see something about the arrow hearings and go, ah, it's a bunch of bullshit and dismiss it and go on about their day, sip their coffee and read the financial page. Um, not saying that anybody who does yeah. that re- yeah. is only reading the financial page. They might be reading the sports section for all I know, but and they can have their boring lives more part to them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it, it just goes to show you how closed off or how, open-minded they are now the person who's saying oh it's just a bunch of bullshit and reading the financial page if tomorrow an alien lands on their front doorstep they're probably going to shit themselves and have a heart attack um (laughs) they're and they're probably going to be the first one to pick up a gun and shoot uh you know that they're they're not going to be the person who's going to welcome them with open arms yeah they're the people that need to be massaged a little bit in this whole deal they're, well, you know, but are you really going to convince them? I mean, if they're, if they're ever gone, I will tell you, I do delight in creating a space in someone's mind where it's possible. And, yeah, yeah. um, you know, and, and so you you can't, you can leave the horse to the water, but you can't make him drink, but you can provide them with an articulate, intelligent explanation that makes these things plausible. Sure. And, you know, the oldest records of human thought 
uh, cave paintings, Lascaux, France, all throughout Europe. Mm -hmm. All of them depict impossible creatures, human-animal hybrids, chimera creatures that are combination creatures. These are things that are impossible by our understanding of the world. Mm -hmm. Yet, since as long as we've been humans, we have been depicting these things, right? And it's every continent where humans have lived, in every culture, and in every time era, people have been discussing these things. And, you know, science is sort of like an arrogant know-it-all teenager. Um, if I can't measure it, it doesn't exist. Yeah. Silly. And when you think about it, like, because you haven't invented a measuring device, like, well, this is orange. Well, I've got the world's best microphone right here and we're not picking up any orange. So orange doesn't exist. It's like, <laughs> what are you talking about? So, you know, um, so there's a reality here and it's a integral part of the human experience undeniable part of the human experience. And for just with a wave of the hand to say, ah, it's all a bunch of baloney, everyone else in the world, pharaohs, shaman, Ben Franklin, Leonardo da Vinci, morons. I'm the only one who knows what's going on here. And since I haven't experienced it, it can't be real, or it doesn't fit my theory of how the world works. It can't possibly be real. And all the rest of you people are fools. Like, that's like the most irritating know-it-all teenager you can imagine. And, you know, to take a, a wiser you know, more realistic, uh, more mature approach is to say, well, science has gotten us pretty far, um, but we haven't learned everything yet. To me, like that's the only realistic uh, approach to this phenomenon. You know, if every culture from the beginning of time and recorded history has been reporting these things and you're with a wave of a hand going to dismiss it, I, I think it's pretty clear um, who's on the losing end of that particular bet. Very true. Very true. Uh, our good friend Ronnie LeBlanc from Expedition Bigfoot has a, a book out there called um, Monsterland. He grew up in Lemonster in the Massachusetts area. Um, and he he's quick to point out that with every sighting of UFO in his area, there's also a sighting of Bigfoot. They seem to go mm -hmm. hand in hand. And in fact, I even have a shirt that has them both hand in hand, Bigfoot and, <laughs> and, uh, and an alien. Uh, is that true there in the gorge? We have such an overlap of those phenomena. So first of all, Sasquatch stories, the thing that amazed me, you know, initially when we started doing this reporting is it seemed like everybody who lived here either knew someone who had a Sasquatch experience or a UFO experience, or it had one themselves, mm -hmm. you know, insurance salesmen in suits would come into the store and tell me about their experiences. Like it was kind of off the charts. And so the thing to understand about the gorge is that it was created by truly apocalyptic forces. So just really briefly, about 15 million years ago, well, for 17 million years, the river has been running through here. Mm -hmm. 15 million years ago, this enormous fissure opened in the earth. It's 112 miles long and it starts spewing out lava, like unbelievable quantities of lava. Um, it'd be like Kilauea times 10,000. So much lava, in fact, that if you spread it out all over the United States evenly, it would bury the entire lower 48 states in 60 feet of lava. Wow. And it ran 300 miles through the ancient Columbia River Valley to the ocean. But it happened in several different eruptive events. So geologists estimate 300 different events. And, this, and it forms this layer cake of basalt rock in the gorge. So you can literally see these layers. Some of them are 20, 30, 60 feet thick. Some of them are 100 feet thick. And each one of those happened uh, dispersed in time. So 20,000 years apart, 100,000 years apart, you know, 
30 years apart, whatever it is. The basalt lava had uh, magnetic um, active grains, so iron, stuff like that. So there's a magnetic orientation to it. And when it cools, that magnetic material orients towards the Earth's magnetic north. That magnetic north shifts over time. Last 100 years, it's moved over 700 miles. And so over time, the as the Earth's magnetic north wanders, um, as these different layers get laid down, each layer has got a different magnetic orientation. All right. I'm going somewhere with this. <laughs> no, I know. I, I hear you. All right. Yep. So you've got literally uh, in the gourd, you can easily see 30 or 40 different layers, right? Each one of those layers has got a different magnetic orientation. So this contributes to this extremely complicated, nuanced electromagnetic environment here. Throw on top of that, all the hydroelectric power that's going on. You also have this flow of the river, which is this extremely strong energetic current that's been running for millions and millions of years. We've got these volcanoes that are erupting, right? And so like Mount Hood, Mount Adams, Mount St. Helens, those are all, you know, anywhere between 500,000 and just 30,000 years old. Mm -hmm. And they're creating this very strong horizontal energy that's okay. moving up through the earth. Like, and when I say energy, I'm not fooling around. Like the energy of the river has literally been converted to an energy we use in the form of electricity. So mm -hmm. these are real forces here. You know, they're creating eruptions and, you know, giant, you know, magmas moving through the earth. So we've got this really textured, nuanced electromagnetic environment here. And, um, in fact, when you look at government charts, they write in bright pink letters, warning, your compass readings will be dramatically off in this area. So already we're in this really weird environment, unlike any other place on Earth. 15,000 years ago, we had these giant Missoula floods. If you know Graham Hancock or Randall Carlson, they talk about the, you know these great Missoula floods that washed across Washington State. We're talking floods that are greater than all of the rivers on Earth combined times 10. And in the gorge, they were more than a thousand feet deep and they scoured the, the landscape and they plucked off all of the soil and all of the topsoil, all of the material. And so it exposed all these magnetic layers to us, right? Mm -hmm. So, so all that is to say, this is a really unique place. And, you know, there's that old adage originally written in the Emerald, uh, tablet that said as above so below it means that things that are happening in the physical world are also happening in the spiritual world or different realms of existence right yep and so here we had these repeated apocalypses on a biblical scale you know when i first started looking at this i was i had this intuition that the boundaries between worlds has been worn very very thin here right so if there is any kind of separation between those things like it is raw here because it's all it's been pounded and pounded and pounded and it's been scraped and scrubbed and so you've got this very unique place where energies that are normally dormant or buried have been exposed so there's a guy named dr michael persinger he's uh written seven books 500 peer-reviewed journals and uh, he uh talks about how magnetic signals like he created this thing called the god helmet and he was able to induce yep. Yep. sense presence you know uh People believe that they experience God. Uh, you could turn on and off things like fear and different types of emotions all by manipulating magnetic signals on the brain. And the reason why that works is that our brains have 5 million magnetite crystals per gram. Magnetite is a, a, a mineral that is 
magnetically sensitive. And so our brains are literally geared to um, adjust and uh, respond to electromagnetic environments. And he determined that, you know, things like uh, telepathy or, um, you know, remote viewing and different types of what we would call psi experiences are intimately related with uh, electromagnetic environment coming from the sun. So when the solar, solar storms and when they're solar quiet, different abilities become more present. Mm -hmm. So here in the gorge, we've got the, all this going on. And what I believe is happening is that they're not hallucinations that people are happening. If they were hallucinations, you wouldn't capture them on film. You wouldn't see footprints. You wouldn't get hair samples. Right. Um, so what I think is happening is that the human mind, human body apparatus, whatever you want to call it, is sort of calibrated to a range of perception. We all understand that dogs can hear things that we can't, or we know that we can see the visible light spectrum, but we can't see ultraviolet and infrared. I think that, that we have senses that can be, be magnetically adjusted, sort of like switching the channel, and you open perceptual pathways that you don't normally have, right? That you're not that are not normally available. Mm -hmm. And so in the gorge, because of this really unique electromagnetic environment, it's physically altering our brain's perceptive capabilities, and we're able to see and perceive things. And the same is true for things that are perhaps living in, we could call them dimensions or Another word for dimensions are things that are not normally available to our senses, right? So right. they're existing. They're they're just like the whistle the dog hears that you can't hear exists in our world. It's just not available to your senses. And I, so I think that we are here for whatever, for all those crazy apocalyptic reasons. Uh, people's perceptions are able to shift, sometimes unknowing to them, um, or... If there are beings in that other realms, they're able to shift and come into our realm. It's really interesting when you think about like a video game. A video game can be a vast world, mm -hmm. um, but it's contained on a tiny chip, like a tiny computer chip. Right. And so what that means is that world is nothing but information and energy funneled through a, a tool that allows you to perceive it. Mm -hmm. There's no reason to think our world is any different than that. And so things can move back and forth between these worlds, but they don't need to have a, a giant physical footprint for them to be vast, expansive, to be persistent and consistent over time, that things can live there, that can move between these worlds, leave physical evidence. Like when you play a video game, you leave physical evidence, your presence to the people in the video game. Uh, and so I think something like that is happening here. Mm -hmm. And that's why we see these things. And so your question was, and this is the long way to the bank. Okay. Is the UFO and um, Bigfoot phenomenon related? Mm -hmm. I think very much so. We see a lot of these phenomena occurring along the high power, high tension power lines in the area. Um, we we seem to see a lot of these things happening around the mountains in the area, and so they're they're layered on top of each other, um, especially through the river canyons. We see that that a lot. And uh, so, yeah, I do think that they're definitely related. Um, and and exactly how? I don't have the answer to that. Do you personally in the gorge and in in the area around where you live, James, and especially around the store, are you are you hearing physical evidence of Sasquatch? Are you seeing physical evidence of Sasquatch? Have you had that experience yourself? Yeah, uh, we've had you know dozens of hair samples brought into the store. Okay, um, you know, there's the famous Skookum cast, which happened just a few miles away from my house, actually, which is this 
enormous cask where a Bigfoot apparently laid down on its side, put its arm on the ground and reached out and grabbed some apples that uh, some people from the Bigfoot researchers uh, organization, uh, they were doing some filming and they were setting up some, hopefully to catch some tracks. And they thought this really amazing cask. And they found primate DNA. They found dermal ridges. They found the body cast was 50% larger than a six foot tall human. Mm. And so um, all those things are absolutely present here. Um, I myself, like I said, have captured uh, photographs of glowing orbs. We've had, um, I was working on my vehicle in my garage uh, a couple of months ago, and I heard some vocalizations, you know, a couple hundred yards away in the woods and then sticks knocking. Now, it could have been anything, you know, there's no guarantee that that's something, but it's such a ubiquitous experience out here. And so many people have had eyewitness accounts or heard vocalizations or seen you know, in places where footprints have been found and things like that, that it's absolutely, yes, there is definite physical evidence out here. And I've seen much of it myself. Do you find even with the 200 plus people that have reported this to you, you whether it be UFO experiences, Sasquatch experiences, ghost experiences, do you find it's just a fabric of the land now? Or do you find that people are generally shook by it? You know, for a lot of folks, well, maybe we should talk about the Clickitat Ape Cat, and that'll okay, kind of yeah, illustrate let's, let's some of this stuff. Okay. So the first report that I had heard about this, a gentleman came in the store close to closing time, and uh, his family, Margie knew his family well, and she had helped them out and some other things. So he's kind of a friend of the family. I had never met him before. Mm-hmm. And it took him, even then, 45 minutes to work up the courage to describe his experience. Okay. And eventually he said, well, he was orienteering uh, near Buck Creek, which maybe three, four miles from the store. So map and compass work. His compass started acting strange, uh, pointing away from north. So that could be anything. Uh, and then he looked up and across the creek, he saw this enormous black panther creature. He said that, um, so it looked like a cat, uh, cat-like body, long cat-like tail, black fur. Uh, and it stood four to five feet tall at the shoulder. So right away, you know, I've been in the wilderness a lot. Cougars live out here. But our cougars uh, never get more than 24 inches tall, uh, maybe 26 inches tall, but that's it. And so the fact that he's talking about a cat that's four to five feet tall at the shoulder, well, that's unheard of, right? Okay. Also, cougars are never black. Uh, no credible um, wildlife biologist will concede that there are black cougars. Uh, cougars are typically tan when they're when they darken in color, they turn to a reddish color, but there's no scientifically recognized black cat. So, and in terms of the size, four to five feet tall, so that's bigger than a tiger. Mm-hmm. Tiger is the largest living cat in the world. I did some research. There's only one cat in the fossil record that comes anywhere close to that. And it's uh, the American lion lived during the ice age, also known as Panther Atrox. Uh, this is a creature that they found many, many skeletons of. It definitely lived in Washington State during the Ice Age. 10,000 years ago is when it said to have gone extinct. But its estimated weight was between 1,000 and 1,200 pounds. Okay. And so that's the only thing in the fossil record that matches anything like what he's describing to me. Uh, he goes on to say, uh, you know, the encounter lasted for quite some time, you know, four or five minutes. Uh, it, um, eventually, the creature wandered off into the forest. And he said, but you know, James, the strangest thing was that it had a face that looked like a monkey. And I pressed him on it because that was a, you know, something I had never heard of before. And he described, you know, sort of a flattened snout. Mm -hmm. 
um, and intelligent ape-like eyes. And he had some other details, which I always kind of keep close to the vest so that if other people tell me about them, I have some dry powder so I know that their stories are matching up. Yeah. And, uh, and so he was adamant about this last fact. And I was fascinated. I thought, wow, like, what could that be? You know, I've never heard of anything like that before. Clearly was a cat. The long black tail means that it wasn't a Sasquatch, you know, and also the feline body shape. Mm -hmm. The next day I was pretty excited. So I was talking to my employees about it and I said, Hey, you know, we got this really cool report last night. I described to them what, what I had heard. And one of my employees, Missy, she started shaking. She said, Oh my God, I've seen that thing myself. She was, it was at dawn and she was driving down Klickitat Canyon and she saw it uh, sort of off to the side of the road. She pulled over her car and watched it for a decent amount of time. It eventually walked into a small patch of tall grass and then it never came out the other side. She got out of her car and tentatively sort of explored and investigated the area. She wondered if she should tell the homesteads nearby that there's this giant black cat wandering around. She figured they'd think she was crazy, so she didn't do that. And it's a good thing she didn't, because when she told her family about it, they all kind of laughed nervously. And they said, well, you probably just saw a cow. Now, this is a grown woman. And to suggest that you don't know the difference between a black panther and a cow is ridiculous. It'd be like if you saw a red Ferrari driving the street. You told her friends, hey, I saw a red Ferrari. They said, ah, Ferraris are pretty rare. You probably saw a red minivan. You'd be like, no, I know what I saw, right? Yeah. So based on that, you know, even family ridicule, and you can't blame them. People want to normalize experience. Like the world is hard enough. You don't need giant black cats wandering around. Like it's better if you can easily quickly jump to something to dismiss it and not have to deal with this fact. Right. So, um, So she kind of kept it quiet, but it was such an extraordinary experience. And for her to hear some validation of it was so emotionally powerful that it caused her to, you know, physically tremble and just be, you know, like a great wash of relief came over her. So for me, these are two very credible witnesses. Um, And, you know, we've got a marketing budget. So I put out radio ads. I said, has anyone else seen a giant black cat? At that time, we called it the Ebony Ape Cat. And um, we put out flyers at the local trailheads mm-hmm. and oh, oh my god it worked we started getting tons and tons and tons of reports and um so i will say so we have received easily 70 reports of this creature really and of all of the reports and even uh, senior law enforcement officials have seen it so you know uh, very credible to me about half of those reports so everyone describes a big black cat with a long black tail Half of those reports say the creature is enormous in size, so four to five feet tall at the shoulder. And just a handful of them, and again, not everyone gets a chance to see its face, but a handful of them say that it's got that monkey-like face. So maybe six to ten of the reports are like that. And so it's either a shape-shifting creature, it's a creature that people don't always get a good look at, we're dealing with a couple different kinds of creatures. We're not sure what it is that we're talking about, but definitely there is a real phenomenon here. Now... Of those 70 reports, you know, many of them are pretty unexciting. I was driving my ATV down a trail, a giant black cat jumped across the trail, scared the crap out of me, and I never saw it again. Like, mm-hmm. that's the whole story. Yeah. That's not someone trying to get rich off their ape cat story, right? This is like, saw this weird thing. The reports go back 40 years, uh, at least. And people talk about seeing mutant cougars uh, and big, big cats. We've had at least seven or eight reports of seeing the cat at the side of the road. 
oftentimes um, people say that they saw it leap across the road. And when its body is extended, it is the complete length of two lanes of a road. So white line, yellow line to white line. When it jumps and its legs are spread out, uh, it is the full length of the road. Um, we had one hunter say he saw it in the scope of his rifle, didn't shoot it because he thought it was a danger and he would get in trouble. We had another gentleman say that he saw it in his driveway with a cub, so a youngling along oh, with wow. it. So very clearly a reproducing uh, population that we're talking about here. And so, again, I don't know what it is. And, you know, this has been a journey for me. And, uh, you know, we get a bunch of reports and I'll convince myself, ah, like the ape face thing is an anomaly and, you know, someone probably dismissed saw it. And then I'll get like a crew chief from a firefighting team, wilderness firefighting team. You know, I've got some experience with that. And so, yeah. you know, you there's a rapport and there's a no BS kind of a moment. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, yep, the whole team saw it on the first night of a three-day mission. And we were terrified that we were going to have to deal with it throughout that mission. And you have to understand a wilderness firefighter is probably one of the most competent wilderness professionals you're going to find. These are people that are off on their own in a, and they're dealing with a dangerous situation. They have seen every kind of wildlife there is. And she said, yeah, James, this thing, its face was flattened. It looked like a monkey. And I got a better description from her. And the best way that I can think about it is sort of like, you know how there's a German shepherd with a long snout and then a pug dog with a short face. Yeah. So it's sort of like the face has been flattened on this creature. It doesn't have that long, long snout. So whether it's a monkey or not, or just some type of, you know, variation on, on, a, on a big cat, we don't know. But definitely, you know, I am, and, and in fact, just the other day, maybe a, two weeks ago, someone sent me a Facebook post. This was in a community page at the west end of the gorge. And they have a, a video of a black cat-like creature walking through their property. Hmm. And I'm trying to get a hold of these folks uh, to get the original footage because on Facebook, you know, it degrades the quality. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and it's kind of at a distance and there's really not clear markers to, to gauge the size. Um, but I'm, you know, hot on the trail of trying to get a hold of the uh, original poster and sort of investigate the area and get that original footage to share with people. We did get one guy who took some video of it. Don't worry, it's not conclusive. Uh, it was at night, and so all you really see are the eyes and hear some vocalizations. But he said his encounter lasted 20 minutes, and when he started to film it, immediately uh, the battery in his cell phone and his headlamp died simultaneously. But he did get seven seconds of the creature's eyes blinking and moving up and down and then it growling and making some vocalizations. Um, I am just about to announce a $1,000 reward for authentic video footage of the creature. Um, okay. Just making sure my lawyers have got the contract correct so you know no one gets weirded out about it. But yeah. I am utterly convinced that um, there is a there's a being out here that people are encountering and it looks like a big black cat. Now, is that common James that, that people run into this creature if they try to video it or, or try to use some sort of mechanical device around it that it drains batteries? Well, you know, we do have that one report and there are many other reports like when people are with it's having Sasquatch encounters that they have electronics trouble. And this again leads me to that, coming back to this idea that it's the electromagnetic environment and some type of interaction with that electromagnetic environment is what's um, at least, you know, part and parcel with these encounters is some kind of alteration in electromagnetic fields. Mm -hmm. um, again, that's a theory, you know, I don't have any 
I'm not a scientist. I don't have any data on that. So, you know, as I look around, we talked about this ESETI ranch. And one lead is that one of the alien or extraterrestrial races that James claims to be in contact with is a race of feline humanoids. Okay. And so that is one potential lead. Um, there is some Native American stories about a creature, a supernatural being called the Meshepeshu. These are a race of what the Native Americans call underwater panthers. When they talk about underwater creatures or things from the sky realm or things from the earth realm, they're talking about a being that has a foot in the spirit world and in the physical world. So Meshepeshu are these panther protectors. Their role is that of a protector. And they uh one description that i read is that they look like a black panther with the face of a man uh so very fascinating uh, hmm. about 20 minutes east of the store there is this set of petroglyphs probably 40 petroglyphs that you can drive right up and look at and uh we've got a picture of that but one of them looks like a cat-like face uh and it has wavy water lines underneath its head and um so we have evidence to suggest that I've been experiencing this for hundreds, perhaps thousands of years here in the gorge. But the petroglyphs, no one knows what they mean. There's no person alive who can say what any of those petroglyphs represents or means. And there's some fascinating stories about that. So, you know, as I'm doing this research and I'm trying to like, okay, well, what are we dealing with here? Is it a mutant cougar? Is it some kind of extraterrestrial thing? Is it some kind of supernatural spirit being? Uh, that Native Americans have been counting for centuries. But there is a really interesting theory related to the Hanford nuclear site. So back in the 1940s, everyone knows about the Manhattan Project down in Los Alamos. Mm -hmm. Los Alamos, you had the uh, physicist designing the bomb. But it was in Washington State, just 60 miles upriver from us, that they had the Hanford nuclear site. And this is where they built the reactors um, right along the Columbia River, like literally they took the water from the Columbia and the uh, hydroelectric power from the Columbia, and that's what they used to forge plutonium. This is an element that does not exist in nature. And for the first time in the world, they were uh, forging plutonium on an industrial scale. Eventually, during the Cold War, they expanded to nine different nuclear reactors. They produced enough plutonium there to build 60,000 nuclear weapons. Uh, wow. Plutonium from Hanford was in the trinity test so the first atomic weapon ever detonated in the history of the universe for all we know um was forged at hanford now hanford is a gigantic government site it was like basically the organization eventually became the department of energy but they basically uh commandeered 600 square miles with 90 miles of columbia river coast they, they took the people and the Indians who were living there and moved them elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And they built the most incredible site possible to forge this element that doesn't exist in nature. And from day one, they had an animal testing program there. They were terrified that the Nazis were going to not only create the bomb, but what else were they going to do with atomic power? And, and in the 40s, we knew that it could induce mutations, but what else could it do? No one knew. The Nazis were highly into creating super soldiers, super animals. In fact, they even the Nazis are said to have brought back an extinct Ice Age creature called an aurochs, which is a giant hyper-aggressive bull, and they populated a forest in Poland with these things. And so they do retrobreeding in this whole big process. And so 
everyone knows about the bomb, but a lot of people don't understand that this whole genetic mutation thing was a big part of the fears of the allies. And so they enlisted a uh, professor from the University of Washington, name was Dr. Lauren Donaldson. And his only academic claim to fame before he was given this assignment was that he had created a super animal. Uh, it was called the Donaldson super trout. And it was a fish, it was a trout that was eight times larger and stronger than a normal trout. It reached sexual maturity in half the time. It could swim in salt water and fresh water, and it was super survivable. It had a lot of fight to it. And even now today, these fish are stocked in you know fisheries. And so he's the guy that they assigned to the Hanford Animal Testing Program from day one. Like it was a part of the plan from the beginning. Well, eventually Donaldson goes on to the South Pacific and he's a part of like the Bikini Atoll testing and the disastrous Castle Bravo stuff. But he stays in contact with the new guy who's in charge at Hanford, a guy named Bill Bear. Bill Bear was a World War II veteran, decorated soldier, specialized in amphibious warfare. Now, Bill Bear died, I think, in 2014, but he left behind several oral histories of his time at Hanford. He was the guy in charge of the animal testing laboratories during the Cold War. And his under his purview, that program expanded it, and they could house a thousand large animals there at a time. So a lot of the testing they were doing was on farm animals. So what happens if cows get irradiated? What does their milk become irradiated? Like, so they tested, you know, like most of what we know medically about the effects of radiation came from the animal testing at Hanford. Oh, wow. But he tells this story that they had obtained, uh, and it varies. Um, I've seen different reports between 30 and 50 alligators. And he even holds up this picture of a device that they use to irradiate these alligators. So they're doing these radiation experiments on apex predators out there. And Bill Bear himself, in all three of these oral histories, and it's supported by newspaper articles at the time, one night, six of these irradiated experimental apex predators outsmarted the scientists, escaped their pens and got into the Columbia river. And so you've got these six, you know, experimental apex predators swimming around out there. So they deploy these army hunting teams to go hunt these things down and they hunt for six months and they only ever capture four of them. So there are these potentially a, a breeding pair of experimental irradiated apex predator alligators swimming around out there. And even well into the 80s, Bill Barr is talking about how he'd be getting calls from fish and wildlife people asking if he knew anything about alligators in the Columbia. And he would laugh and say no and hang up on them. But, um, and we've even had reports of people having their kayaks tugged at and stuff like that from things that they don't know what did it. But anyway, um, so the question becomes like, why are they experimenting on alligators yeah. in Washington state? You know, what's the deal there? Right. Well, a lot of people don't know this, but since 1958, a quarter of our nuclear stockpile has been guarded by dolphins. And the reason why is that one of the many of our nuclear sites are on waterways, right? So our sub bases, you know, Almost every uh, nuclear reactor has got to have a water source. Mm -hmm. And the Columbia River is no different. It's got, you know, the 90 miles of river coastline. Well, 
they realized that the biggest threat was like Soviet scuba divers with night vision goggles swimming in, surveilling, sabotaging, doing whatever. And sonar wasn't an active deterrent because you can't tell the difference between a Soviet diver and a sea lion or a tuna or some other piece of sea life. But you could train a dolphin to distinguish what a Soviet diver looked like. And what they would do is they put this special harpoon-like dart on their snout and the dolphins were trained that when they encountered this soviet diver they would ram the diver with that barbed harpoon and it would stick into their flesh and then a balloon would inflate and it would bring that diver to the surface and the navy would scoop them up and then be able to interrogate them and you know determine what what the hell was going on and so this is a program that has been active since 1958 and only became public knowledge in the late 80s And so the U.S. military has been using animals to protect our most sensitive nuclear sites since forever, right? Uh And and so Hanford was our most sensitive of nuclear sites. There were four Nike missile batteries on the Hanford site, more than any other site in America. Now, the Nike missile site is a surface-to-air, nuclear-tipped, anti-aircraft weapon. And the idea was it would be far better to detonate a nuclear weapon over U.S. populations to take out Soviet bombers than to have those Soviet bombers bomb Hanford. Like, that is the level of, we're not messing around, that they were talking about here. Every one of those Nike missile sites was guarded by dogs because, and this is a quote, that a dog is 10 times more effective as a sentinel than a human being. And so for a long time, we've recognized that animals are much better at guarding things than humans are. Mm -hmm. So you can't bring dolphins into the Columbia river because Columbia river is freshwater and dolphins operate in saltwater. So you ask yourself, okay, well, what kind of river animals can we do? Right. And so alligators are on that list. If alligators don't work, um, it turns out that the number one best riverine predator in the world, hands down, no question, is a black jaguar. These creatures can hold their breath for 15 minutes. They can eat underwater. They can swim over a kilometer in the open ocean. They have night vision that's six times better than a human being. Pound for pound, they are the strongest of the big cats. And they always, always, always instinctively drag their prey to shore. So if you're a cold warrior, like this thing checks all the boxes. Mm -hmm. And so we know for a fact that they at Hanford were doing experiments on apex predators. We know that they couldn't contain their experiments. And we know that once those experiments escaped, they couldn't recapture them. And so if you're a giant big cat who's part of some kind of sentinel program at Hanford and you escape, you're not going to go north east or south deeper into the desert you're going to head west into clickitat county where there's you know where the beginning of the rainforest is there's all this available habitat tons of available food sources and so one of the most reasonable theories that i've heard about why we see giant black cats that seem mutated here in clickitat county is because they are escaped experiments from the nuclear activities over at the atomic frontier at the Hanford Nuclear Reservation. Wow. <laughs> Isn't I, I, that only, I only have one word for that, James. Wow. Uh, it takes a, a mad scientist to come up with that. Um, 
So, but, yeah. And but, so, again, here I am, and I'm just trying to, like, if I'm not going to evoke some kind of paranormal reason, it's not aliens, it's no, you know, no, some no, kind but, of thing in our real world, like, what could it possibly be? And that, to me, is one of the most reasonable, plausible stories about why we're seeing these cats. And, you know, there are black jaguars in North America, but their range yeah. is a thousand miles south of here. Right, so, right. if they're not cougars and they're not jaguars, what the heck are they doing here? Yeah, yeah. But it takes a mad scientist and a strategist to come up with something like that and put it right in your backyard. Yeah. 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 If it's if so, it's not an alien creature, then that's exactly what it has to be, right? You know, and so the the notion that the government has been involved in doing weird shit here for decades and decades, like this place is, you know, and who knows what came first, the chicken or the egg? Like, is the reason why there's, and to this day, there are still government labs out there. Like Hanford was closed down at the end of the Cold War. And it's right now the biggest cleanup site in America. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know, I've talked to wildlife biologists who were out there doing, you know, surveys and stuff like that. They told me that they had one guy's job was to track radioactive bunny poop. So what happens is these <laughs> radioactive bunnies, well, these bunnies, they sit next to the barrels because they're warm. Okay. And then they get irradiated and then they hop all over the range because it's 600 square miles, right? Yeah. And then wherever they leave droppings, those droppings are radioactive. So consider that those rabbits are prey for cougars and coyotes and wolves and everything else that eats rabbits. And they're getting this steady dose of radiation. And one of the things Dr. Lauren Donaldson said in a debate in 1970 in the Seattle Times was that, yes, high doses of radiation cause horrific mutations and you can't you know, you really don't survive. But low doses over time actually strengthen a population. And we've seen that in Chernobyl, where like the wolf population is exploding because it's a non-exclusion zone. And so even if it's not a part of some kind of dedicated sentinel program, still a really good chance that there are creatures that have been consuming radioactive prey. Uh, You know, that same um, wildlife scientist told me that he saw like three-headed rattlesnakes out there. And so... There's like a ton of like weird, weird stuff going on. And Hanford has also been one of those sites that has had UFOs spying on it. And you can literally see Mount Adams from Hanford. Like if you wanted to set up shop and watch what the hell these, you know, hairless monkeys are doing with plutonium, uh, I'll tell you what, Mount Adams is a pretty convenient spot if you wanted to check on their activities at Hanford. Like it is a pretty remarkable situation out there. And that Kenneth Arnold sighting that we talked about in 1947 was well after things got kicked off at Hanford. So who knows? Hard to say, just well, trying to put the pieces together. No, it will. You bring up an interesting point and that's this, you know, throughout uh, the years we've heard things like, you know, UFOs will check in on our nuclear silos and, and they'll disarm our nuclear uh, silos because mm-hmm. we may government be testimony to that under oath to that effect. Yeah. Because we may be doing damage to ourselves. Are they sitting mm-hmm. on Hanford because maybe we're doing some damage to ourselves or creating rifts in the time space continuum. There is a facility out that's now uh, was built on the Hanford reservation. Not too long ago, maybe, maybe 10 years ago. It's called the LIGO. It stands for the light laser interferometer gravitational observatory. It basically has these two perpendicular tubes, two perpendicular vacuum tubes that are two miles long. And they are so sensitive, they can measure one ten hundredth thousandth of the width of an 
atom's nucleus. Their job is to detect anomalies in the space-time continuum. It's on the website, go to LIGO.org, I think, and you can see this, this apparatus. A week after they turned it on, they found anomalies in the space-time continuum at Hanford. And so, like, the and the uh, Pacific Northwest National Laboratory is out there now. Like, there is some really high-end experimental science going on along the Columbia River, you know, just upstream from where we are, where all this crazy paranormal stuff is happening. You know, and it, like I said, it may be a chicken and the egg kind of thing. Maybe they're here because uh, it's such a sensitive area where the boundaries between worlds have been worn thin, or maybe not. But in any case, I'm going to tell you, the gorge is, it ain't normal. <laughs> it ain't normal, but it's visitable, that's for sure. Uh, it is, it and, is. And you can uh, you can stop by Margie's there and, and, uh, and get a map, uh, get an arcane adventure map, and you can check it out. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's for sure. Uh, are you open year round over there, James? We are. Uh, we're open seven days a week, uh, year round. Wow. And and is it is it accessible? Is it something where if if I show up in January, February, something where I could I could take off on an adventure? Oh yeah. So we're about uh, sixty minutes from Portland. Okay. So you would fly into Portland and uh, head on down eighty four or. Route 14 on the Washington side. We're right on Highway 14. So, um, and yeah, that's the area is um, all year round. And what's amazing is that, like, um, some of these adventure areas are like minutes off the road. Like, you don't have to go far because, you know, it's such a crazy condensed area that um, the gorge area is that, like, uh, there are places like Horse Thief Butte or Beacon Rock. These are these astonishing um, geologic features. And you can see like where those floods came through and you can see those layer cake walls that are sometimes a thousand feet high. Mm-hmm. It's it's absolutely stunning all year round. All right. Well, we're sending them your way, my friend. Uh, it sounds fascinating. I, I, I got to take a trip out myself because I, I, I need to see it for myself. Sounds- Give me a call before you do, and, and I'll, I'll show you the cool spots. I, I definitely will do that. Uh, James Shupsky is our guest. Uh, and, and again, folks, I encourage you to check out Margie's Outdoor Store and, and get one of those uh, arcane adventure maps for yourself. And and uh, check out some of these reports for yourself. I, I, I'm fascinated. You know, I may, I may even bring Eric Altman with me, uh, who's uh, one of the foremost uh, Bigfoot uh, adventures uh, with me because I'm sure he would uh, he would absolutely love it. I think he would. There's uh, a place out here called the Monte Cristo Natural Preserve, and the locals all call it Monster Mountain because there have been so many Sasquatch sightings out there. Yeah, and it's just uh, kind of off the charts, and and it's accessible. I mean, like 20 minutes from the store, and you're there. Really? Well, yeah. I'm gonna grab Eric and come out. I think. Yeah, it. Uh, I think that's the thing to do. So, folks, uh, we're going to have links in the description of this program so you can uh, you can uh, go on out yourself and, and have an adventure. And, uh, again, a year-round adventure at that. James, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It was absolutely my pleasure. I want to thank James Shubsky for being on the show today. Again, the Click-A-Tat Ape Cat, Sasquatch, and UFOs. You can check it all out. Uh, by heading out to the Gorge in Washington. And again, we'll have all the links in the description of this program as to how you can get out there and and see it for yourself. I'm looking forward to getting out there someday. I want to see it all for myself and and head out to Mount Adams and check it all out and see the wonder that is uh, and have my own eyes opened. I, I, I look forward to it.
as I'm sure you all do as well. Folks, a couple of uh, house cleaning items before we leave you today. One, uh, we anxiously await your Parashare stories. Be sure to get them in to Tim at darknessradio.com or go to darknessradioshow.com. Click on that blue button. Leave us a voice note. You've got two minutes to do so when you click on that blue button. If you need more time, click it a second time and leave us an addendum. You've got two more minutes or click it as much as you need in order to get your story through to us. And we look forward to getting either your voice note or your written story, and we'll air it right here on the program on Supernatural News Wednesdays in our Parish Here segment. Uh, again, we need your stories. Uh, be sure to send them on, and we will air them right here. Also, we'll have a brand new Cruiser and Bruiser Darkness Radio shirt for you here in the next couple of weeks. Uh, waiting for Cruiser to get back from vacation. He's in New Orleans this week, of course, uh, celebrating his uh, baby girl Samantha's 21st birthday. So we are looking forward to having him back. He'll have some paranormal tales for us. He'll have his own parish share for us uh, when he gets back next week. But we will have a brand new Darkness Radio Cruiser and Bruiser t-shirt. How do you like that? That's coming up uh, next week. We'll let you know how to get a hold of that through our store. Uh, we'll have some more items in the store as well. Be sure to check out Darkness Radio show.com in the store section we'll have a few little uh, interesting items in the store put it that way that you can order through there besides the items we already have in the store reminder to take it easy this weekend enjoy fall first weekend of nfl football huh that'll be fun i'll be sure to scream at the screen at kirk cousins for you i know a few of you would like me to do that for you <laughs> i'll do that as well uh, Another note, be kind to yourself, be kind to others this weekend, and uh, look in on one another. Maybe invite a, a neighbor over who doesn't get a whole lot of attention over for some football this weekend and a few snacks. Uh, create a sense of community around each other this weekend, especially as we get into fall here. Tis the season, right? We're coming upon Halloween, and we all like to celebrate Halloween, so why not create that fall festive feel around the community and, and start getting together with neighbors as it starts to cool down here. Uh, we like to get to know our neighbors, especially the kids. Now that Halloween's coming up, it's a good time to get to know our neighbors so we can start establishing a more comfortable feeling so we can start getting that trick-or-treating vibe in the neighborhood again. I know a lot of neighbors and neighborhoods have stopped doing that over the last decade or two. Although it is picking up now in the neighborhoods, isn't it? Especially post-COVID. So, why not get familiar with your neighbors again? And, and now's a good time to do it, especially now that the heat is, is uh, died down quite a bit and we can start really getting into that fall season. I know we're doing it with our neighbors. We're, we're getting to know the kids next door and the kids across the street and, and uh, you know, helping out with sports programs. The kids are coming around and asking for donations for sports programs for school and whatnot. So it's a good way to get to know the neighbors and whatnot. So if you can... Reach out, get to know your neighbors this weekend a little bit, start up a conversation and bring that community closer. After all, we're way too separated in society these days. Let's bring each other together this fall and start to work towards year end of bringing each other together a little bit. Do it as a favor to your buddies here at Darkness Radio. That'll do it for this week. Bruiser is back next week and we're looking forward to a great week of shows next week. Adam Barry next week. How do you like that, folks? We got Adam Barry on tap next week and a great week of shows. So 
Thank you so much again for tuning in week after week and being a part of this Darkness Radio family. I appreciate it. Bruiser appreciates it. Mally appreciates it. And Jess appreciates it. We thank you so much. And thank you for tuning in to the best in paranormal programming. This has been Darkness Radio.